Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. To put today's gospel in its context, Jesus had come in triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the day we celebrate on Palm Sunday, to the sounds of Hosanna, son of David, and he's come in on the back of a donkey, both of which things are fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the promised Messiah. In Zechariah, we hear that your king will come to you riding on a donkey. And we also hear that Messiah will be great David's greater son. So already at the triumphant entry, we see two messianic prophecies have been fulfilled. And then Jesus had come into the temple the day before, turned over the tables of the money changers, and again quoted the Old Testament by saying, my house will be a house of prayer. In other words, anybody who was listening could have heard that he considered this his house. Messiah indeed. And so we find him this day teaching again in the temple. And so the chief priests and the scribes who think they own the temple uh, come up to him and ask the question, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, the cleansing of the temple, healing the lame, the blind, all of the poor and suffering, teaching by whose authority? Who gave it to you? Of course, the question they want to have answered by him directly is, are you the Messiah? Will you say that you are the Messiah? Because if you say that, we can have you had up on blasphemy charges and uh, and then, of course, um, be killed. But if any of you have seen any of those detective shows like NCIS or CSI or any of those number of things, uh, when they go into interrogation, the question that they want to ask the person is, Did you do, are you the murderer? Did you do this? But they never go about that question directly. They always ask other questions around about to try and get the answer to the question that they really want to ask. And so this is what the chief priests and the scribes are doing to Jesus. They want to know whether or not he can considers himself the Messiah, but they go around a back route to try and do it, and that's why they ask, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Of course, Jesus is completely wise to their ploy and what they're trying to do, and his time is not yet. His time will be. Um, He knows he's going to the cross. That's not unknown to him. He said that three times at least to his disciples. We're going to Jerusalem. I will be handed over, and I will die on a cross. He knows that's what's going to happen to him, but it's not yet. And so he turns the tables on the chief priests and the scribes by asking them a question. He says, okay, you answer me this question and I'll answer your question. And so he asked a question about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been baptizing in the Jordan. He'd been baptizing a baptism of repentance. He'd calling people 
to repentance and people had been turning from their old ways, repenting of their sin and asking to be baptized by John in the Jordan. It's a different baptism than our baptism with which we're filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's not yet come. Holy Spirit doesn't come until Jesus is resurrected and ascended and sends the Spirit. This is a baptism of repentance by John in the Jordan and many people are coming from all over repenting of their sin and being baptized so um, Jesus asked them this question is the baptism of John from heaven otherwise in other words is it through God's power and God's authority that John was doing this ministry or was it John just grasping authority and power for himself and now they're in a double bind Uh, Because if they answer Jesus that it was through God's authority, they know what he's going to ask next. Why didn't you believe him? And therefore, why didn't you respond to the call to repentance and to follow God? But if they say, on the other hand, that it was just he was deciding to do it in his own power and authority... Um, they're going to be lynched by the people because the people believe that John the Baptist has come as a prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets. There's been no prophet in Israel for 500 years, but people now believe that God has sent again a prophet and that God's power is on John the Baptist. So what do they do? They lie and they say, we don't know. And so, not only have the tables been turned, Jesus says, well, I'm not answering your question then. But to push the point home further, he tells the parable of the two sons. The first one is representative of the tax collectors and the prostitutes, who by their very lives, by what they're doing, look like they've said no to God, that they've turned away from what God wants in obedience for their lives, um, to turn away from evil and to turn to God. But hearing the word, hearing John, they've actually repented and they have done the will of the Father. They've been obedient to what the Lord God wants them to do. The second son is representative of the chief priests and the scribes. Father goes to them and asks them to go and work in the vineyard and they say, yes, 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 we'll do that. And then they don't do it. All of what they're doing, their worship and is all show. It's outward appearance. It's not heart obedience. They're grasping power for themselves and they want to hold on to the power, which is why they're confronting Jesus about his power and authority, because they want to hold on to what they have, which is why they're in cahoots with the the Roman Empire and what's going on with the, with the Roman conquerors. And so Jesus tells this parable on them to say, you're the second son. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into heaven ahead of you. Because the answer to the question, which of the sons did the father's will, is of course the first ones. Because they didn't just say it and not do it. They said no, but actually went ahead 
and turned, repented and did the will of the Father. So what do we have to learn about from the gospel? I think there's one question, two parts to it. Are there times in our own lives where we've said yes to God with all of the appearance and yet have not truly been obedient to his will and his ways? And the second part of that question is, what should we be doing to elicit the question of us, by whose authority are you doing that, so that we can then tell the story of Jesus, who we follow, and by whose authority we are doing these things. I think the epistle sheds light on both of those parts of that question for us. This is uh, this in the middle part of this epistle reading. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 has come down to us as being known as the Christ hymn. It's a most beautiful expression of God's divine descent to be amongst us. And it shows his humility that he takes off glory. He humbles himself, first of all, by by continuing to be divine but taking on humanity fully taking on humanity and then it says he humbles himself even more by being a servant not just uh, any human but a servant a servant to all and then he humbles himself even more by going to the cross to die so there's this amazing picture of the descent of God by taking off glory retaining divinity, but taking on fully humanity, humanity in the form of a servant, a slave, and a slave who will die on a cross for us. Um, You could reflect on that passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and never plumb the depths of what God in Christ has done for us in his great humility. And it's so very different than the ways of the world. You've heard the phrase, might is right, right? Um, You also probably have heard about Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, he was 33 years old. And at that age, he had conquered most of the known world at that point in time. His empire extended through North Africa, all the way over east, north. He had set up Greek city-states. Greek had become the lingua franca, the, the language of the day. And it was still the language at the time of Jesus in all of the Roman Empire. So great was Alexander, that people started calling him a god. In fact, he thought of himself pretty much as a god, with a small g. Of course, he probably thought of himself with a big g. But, uh, and then afterwards came Caesar Augustus in the time of Christ, first century Palestine. Caesar Augustus had also now, at the point of the sword, conquered even greater lands than Alexander had. And he considered himself divine also because of the might 
with which he had been able to subdue all of these nations. And so he asked everybody, in fact he insisted, that everybody regard him as divine. And from then on, Caesars were regarded as divine. To call Caesar Lord really meant that there were no others. So to call Jesus Lord was uh, a betrayal of Caesar, was being traitorous to Caesar. Caesar was Lord by might and by power. Look how different. So this is what heroic leadership looks like. To the people, Alexander and Caesar Augustus, that's what human heroic leadership looks like. Divine heroic leadership looks so very different. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. World rulers lord it over their subjects, but it mustn't be like that with you. With you, the ruler must be the slave. This is precisely why Muhammad believed that the New Testament was corrupted. You know, Jesus is mentioned in the Quran as a great prophet. The New Testament is mentioned in the Quran. It's called the Injil. But Muhammad, in his humanity, could not imagine that God would humble himself and die. So he only considered Jesus as a great prophet, and yet Jesus himself comes to us, leaping out of the pages of Scripture, saying, I must go to Jerusalem to give my life as a ransom for many. Because in his humility, in his death on the cross, we see the mind of Christ. Only in knowing the mind of Christ can we be like the Son who follows in obedience the will of the Father. Because this is not a rule book. It doesn't tell us exactly how to respond to every single situation that we're confronted with. It's a love story, and it's told in story form. It tells about the love of God who descended from glory and walked amongst us to die for us so that evil would be overcome so that sin would be overcome, so that death would be overcome, and that through that death, his death and his rising again, we would enter into eternal life. That's how we follow the will of the Father, by knowing the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is the mind of God, heroic divine leadership is self-emptying, is self-sacrificing, is sacrificing on behalf always of the other, of not lording it over people, of not might by the sword, but might 
by death. That's the amazing paradox in which we live. The faith that we have and the mind that we are called to follow in obedience. The mind of Christ. I'm talking about each and every one of us individually. If you want to learn about what the Bible says about government responses and civil responses, go to Romans 13. Um, That's not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about us following as the first son or as the true son, which was Christ, who God said go and do and he went and he did. So there's a third son here. The first one says no, but does. The second one says yes, but doesn't. And the third one says yes and does. And that's Christ, who did the will of the Father by emptying himself and coming and sacrificing himself. See, the final battle has been won. The final battle, we know the end of the story. We're living in the middle of the story, but we know the end of the story. Evil has been conquered through the blood of Christ on the cross. Death is conquered through the blood and the death of Christ and his resurrection. We know that when he returns, all of that will come to full fruition. In the mid-time, we're standing in the in-between times, between the incarnation when the kingdom of God has swept into the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdoms of the enemy, the kingdoms of Satan, the kingdom of this world. God's kingdom has already broken in. But we live in the middle of the battle whose end we already know, but we're called, still called, into the battle. And we're called into the battle in prayer. We're to be prayer warriors. We're to take on the burden of prayer, Paul says to the church in Ephesus. When it seems dark out there, When it seems that evil and the enemy is overcoming, we are not to be bowed down because the final battle's won. And we're called into the intermediary battles of prayer. This last week, somebody reminded me of this wonderful hymn This is my Father's world, the last verse. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oh so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. May we be the son, the third son, who promises obedience to the Father and who follows through on that obedience because we have the mind 
of Christ. The mind that looks not to our own interests first, but to the interests of others by serving them and by engaging the battle through prayer as prayer warriors, so that it will be asked of us, by whose authority are you doing this? And we will respond on the authority of our King, Messiah Jesus, who we follow as his true disciples. May it be so. Amen.